Welcome to Tech Talk. Bye. CDT. Welcome to CDT's Tech Talk, where we dish on tech and internet policy while also explaining what these policies mean to our daily lives. I'm Jamal Magby, and it's time to talk tech. Last month, CDT released two complimentary reports. The first report, Online and Observed, Student Privacy Implications of School-Issued Devices and Student Activity Monitoring Software, an interview-based study examining local education agencies' use of and motivations for using monitoring software on school-issued devices, and the second, Student Activity Monitoring Software, Research Insights and Recommendations, presents survey research assessing teacher, parent, and student experiences and attitudes regarding student activity monitoring software. Here to talk more about the importance of these reports and help us understand some of the challenges education practitioners experience when working to address the homework gap is Francella Ocello, Executive Director for Next Century Cities. Francella, thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you so much, Jamal, for the invite. I couldn't be more excited to be here. Well, we're super excited to have you. Well, before we get started and jump into the questions, would you mind telling our listeners a little about your background and how you got involved working with CDT? Well, uh, my uh, road to tech policy is a little bit of an unusual one. I actually, um, tech policy is um, a little bit of a second career for me. And so um, I found my way uh, into it in around 2017. Uh, I was working a lot on a, a mix of tech issues that included um, uh, broadband, uh, tech uh, media diversity, um, you know, AI. Uh, I did get to work on a variety of things that touched the FCC and FTC. And in my current role at uh, Next Century Cities, uh, where I'm the executive director, I focus a lot on not only making sure that uh, every single resident in every community has access to high-speed technology, but I am also uh, always concerned about what are we doing to think about, is it a safe ecosystem once they get there? And so that's where my privacy work uh, regularly intersects with CDT. Uh, our privacy work is lesser known, so people don't always realize that that's actually part of our portfolio, but we definitely think of it as being um, part and parcel of, you know, with us trying to make sure that everyone is able to get online, we want to make sure that they're able to uh, protect their digital rights once they get there. Wow. That is impressive. <laughs> um, so as when I heard you talk a little bit about um, getting students online, and that immediately triggered something um, in me to think about the homework gap. And, and we hear this term homework gap, homework gap, homework gap a lot. But I want to see if you can really explain to our listeners what the homework gap is and why is, is it still an issue for students, even though they're, they're, we're starting to see them go back into the classroom, right? So is this still a big deal? Well, one of the things that I always uh, want to make sure that people are aware of is that the homework gap should not be coupled with the pandemic. It was a problem before the pandemic. It will remain a problem after the pandemic. So we do ourselves a little bit of a disservice if we give the impression that as the pandemic eases, it gets a little bit easier for the students who were having trouble getting online. Because quite frankly, even if you had a one-year or a two-year program where you got a free laptop or maybe uh, your family was able to get a broadband subscription and you know maybe you only had to get the device, the problem is that those students uh, very often live in households that are still going to be struggling even as the economy starts to roar back and people start going back to in-person learning. 
and especially considering the reality that most schools will still have some sort of a hybrid model, it's really important to think about the fact that it's not just about them being able to do, uh, you know, the nine to five learning that happens in the schoolhouse, but that they need to be able to get connected when they leave. So when we talk about the homework gap, you know, this is at least, uh, well, it was actually around at the beginning of the pandemic, around 18 million students uh, and, and some estimates uh, are a little bit lower and say that it's around 12 million students now. But when we think about, you know, who are these students, which households, you know, uh, what do their households look like? What's the demographic makeup? You know, um, what do they share in common? The things that most of them share in common is poverty. And that is something that is not going away with the pandemic. So when we talk about the homework gap, we really need to be talking about what are the long term solutions that we need to have in place to make sure that the students that were struggling before COVID are able to still have opportunities after. Wow, 12 to 18 million children. That's a that's not a small number. Right, right. And I think that um, I think one of the things that surprised me, even when we talked to, um, you know, whether it's local officials or even talking to community leaders, I think people were just surprised that it was in their neighborhood. I think there's always this assumption that, you know, for people who are connected, you know, even right now, as I, I talk to you, I have an iPad on my desk, I have my phone, I have my laptop, and I have my backup, uh, I have a backup laptop. I have lots of ways to get online. But when I think about some of the people in the most poverty-stricken households, they might only have one or two choices. Sometimes it's a cell phone with data caps. Sometimes it's a laptop that they have to share. So it's, you know, I think we get so used to having things in abundance that it doesn't even occur to us that when people are really struggling with connectivity, it affects every single part of their day. So besides lack of devices or, or, or lack of ways to connect, what are some of the biggest privacy and ethics challenges to consider when helping students and their families get connected? Well, I think it's important for whether we're talking about administrators or technologists, you know, whether you're the person who's de- deciding on the actual policy on how it's going to happen, or you're the person who's actually working on implementation and maybe setting up students with devices, walking them th- through training programs. I think it's important for everybody to consider if you were sitting in in the, you know, looking through the eyes of the person who's disconnected, very often these are going to be students, um, sometimes uh, whether they're older students or younger students, this might be their first experience with their device, with having reliable connectivity. So the thing is, when we talk about, you know, navigating privacy protocols, I do remember I was in a conversation with um, a representative from a company who said, you know, we've really gone through all of these extraordinary lengths to, you know, incorporate these settings and do these things. And I'm like, you know, for people who speak digital as their first language, it's hard for them to navigate all of those (laughs) protections. So imagine if it's your first time setting up an email account. Imagine if it's your first time being able to log into a platform that's just your login. You don't have to share it with someone else. I think that we need to think about what does it look like for the people who are new to the digital ecosystem. And we need to be able to speak in their language. We need to be able to meet them where they are. We need to be able to not only tell them about what privacy uh, safeguards are in place, but have that conversation over and over and over again in different ways, not only with the student who might be the, the, the primary user, but also the, the parents, the custodian, the other family members that support that usage. So I want to turn us a bit because CDT released two uh, reports earlier this year And in those reports, we found that 81% of teachers reported that their school uses some form 
of student activity monitoring software. What, what is this software intended for? And were you surprised that so many, so many schools or so many teachers use this type of software? You know, I think that when we think about, you know, access to technology, uh, as much as my uh, position is always that we need to make sure that everyone has the option of being able to participate in a digital society, for all of the good that comes with that, we also know that technology is used as a tool of surveillance. And so when we accept that, I think I, I wasn't surprised at the fact that, um, you know, monitoring software is used on students, much like it's actually used on workers and other people in other contexts. Um, but what troubles me about it is it's often something that starts with good intentions and then something turns awry. Maybe you started with the idea that we want to be able to measure productivity on this platform. How many students are logging in um, in the morning, um, you know, on time for their first class? How many students are completing their entire day? You might start with something that's a really harmless statistic. When it crosses the line is how are we using that information after you got what you originally intended? How are you storing that information and sharing it? Does it become something that could be monetized? Is it something that's actually used to target which students they're going to target with either ads or promotions? So it, it's very often something that really starts with very good intentions that ends up uh, transitioning into something that there's a lot more blurry lines and ethical questions. And I think that because of the um, mysterious nature of how data is collected, used, shared, sold, I think that there's always a reason for people to pause and ask, do we need this information? Who's going to be safeguarding it? Who's responsible when there's something that's a breach? Because very often the people who are the most desperately impacted by when it goes wrong are also the same people who have the least amount of resources for remedies. I, I was actually going to ask that because earlier we talked about a lot of the the, the individuals who are reliant on these school issue devices are also in, in high poverty areas. And so I'm wondering if there's any correlation between the amount of surveil surveillance software on these devices um, when it comes to monitoring, you know, kids who are who are in these in these communities where they don't have resources, right? They, they may not have a, a lot of extra resources. And how can we continue to expand students' access to educational devices without creating inequitable monitoring practices? Well, I'm going to answer that question in two parts. To the first part of your question about the fact that um, very often the the students who are under the most surveillance are going to be the ones that are in the, the high poverty areas. The reality is those are the students that are using devices that are either on loan, that are distributed through programs. Those are the students that are most likely to have it. You know, I, I think just a baseline principle, the more resources they have, you have, the more privacy you have, right? So the thing is, it's like, I don't have to rely on um, a device issued by school. I can, you know, have my own device. I can um, make sure that I have software that detects if someone's trying to watch, to use my camera, to pick up uh, my, uh, my conversations. There's lots of options that I have when you have resources, when you are at the mercy of whether it's a school district or, you know, maybe you're, you're involved in a loaner program, you are limited by whatever uh, disclaimers, uh, you know, uh, rules came that came with that program. There is no room for negotiation. So naturally, those are the students that are most likely going to be subject to some sort of tracking, monitoring, and uh, in some cases, surveillance. 
um, when I, I really do think about, you know, the, the fact that it being most disparately impact, it most disparately impacting low, high poverty students is not, it's not unique to technology. That's something that happens in lots of different programs. So I don't want to give the impression that this is something that is, um, uh, that is uh, new to this space. Um, but I think that very often the people who are creating some of these programs and really reviewing, like, what exactly do people have to agree to, um, very often are also in positions of privilege where they wouldn't necessarily have to agree to those things. Yes. So <laughs> you have to really, you know, want to ask questions, whether you're the, the school administrator who's brokering that deal, the local official who's asking a provider to come into a certain district to help. Um, you know, there are lots of different people that really have to stand in the gap and ask questions. And sometimes that means we need to press pause to be able to read the fine print a little bit more carefully. Sometimes that means that we need to empower the people who are negotiating to actually give them information to say, these are the questions that you need to ask before entering into agreements. And here are the things that you need to ask in an ongoing way, just to make sure that we're actually holding people accountable. And then finally, you know, when we're thinking about how do we avoid this, I think we also have to ask larger questions about, you know, how do we address digital poverty? I mean, that's an unavoidable existential question that we're going to be faced with, because it's the same people who are struggling with access to, you know, food security, housing insecurity, like those are the same people who are also struggling with access to technology. So as long as we are sidelining the poor, not centering them in the conversation, not really being thoughtful about do our policies and our funding programs address their needs in a long term way. Then we're going to constantly be grappling with this issue. I'm gonna I'm gonna throw a curveball in here a little bit, and I just wanna I wanna ask, in your opinion, is there any any perfect answer to address all of these issues? I I don't think that it's it's just my opinion. I don't think there is a perfect answer, and I think that we are misguided in uh, chasing after perfection. I think that you know the idea that we're going to be able to to nail it on the first try on any of these policies is just unrealistic. And I don't necessarily, you know, when we think about like the diaspora of people that we're trying to serve, we are trying to reach people in uh, places that are urban areas, rural areas, tribal communities, people that are not only in low income households by uh, federal poverty standards, but also the working poor, the ones who don't actually qualify for certain programs, but are barely able to feed their families. Like there are so many nuances to who, you know, actually needs help that I don't think that we should be searching for perfection. I think what we should be searching for is are we treating people in the way that we want people to treat the children in our own home? If you had a parent who was going back to school, if you were the person who was actually using uh, a device that actually had monitoring um, apps on it, I think we need to start with just really central principles about are we treating people the way that we would want our loved ones to be treated. And in in that vein, you know, um, a lot of times we hear practitioners say, well, the reason why we have this software on our devices is to keep our students safe while online and, and ensure that they have a positive experience while online. How can practitioners keep students safe in digital spaces while also preserving their privacy? Well, I think as a baseline principle, we need to start with a premise, something that I hinted at earlier, is the fact that digital may not be their first language. I want to point that out 
because I think all the time about the fact that there is definitely um, an assumption that everyone inherited some sort of digital uh, understanding, how to use certain apps, where do I go to actually change my privacy settings, who do I ask in my home, there's an assumption that that is actually in your household. So when some of these students who might be in programs that they might be getting maybe laptops for the first time or maybe uh, unlimited service for the first time, they might not have anyone to ask for help in their households, and they might be limited in who they can ask for help at school. So we do need to make sure that we're speaking in terms that um, lots of people understand. Then we also need to engage in an ongoing conversation that includes whether it's reminders, um, case studies, um, training to upskill. So even if we start with, here's the baseline principles that you need to, to get online for the first few times, here's you know where we revisit that three months later or a year later. And I understand that you know, some, res- some school districts just quite frankly are not going to have the resources to be able to do so in a formal way. But I do want to just, you know, offer the, the reminder that sometimes this is just about making sure that people feel comfortable with the language and can practice the language over and over again. So the thing is, it might not be a formal training process. It might be that it's part of the actual um, curriculum or that we're thinking about every single time that you open up your laptop, we're doing reminders, maybe first Fridays, just to make sure that we're mixing that into the conversation. I also think another thing that's important is to make sure that we're involving people that go beyond the student. There are lots of students, whether it's their, um, whether they have parents at home, other custodians, aunts, uncles, whomever they live with. I think it's important to make sure that there are options for their support networks to be able to be involved in that conversation. Because quite frankly, a 12-year-old should not be expected to be able to navigate this safely um, every single time. They should have places to be able to go to ask questions. And every single one of those students deserves to be able to have um, digital intelligence in their household. And that might mean involving their family members to get training as well. So your organization, Next Century Cities, signed on to one of CDT's advocacy letters calling on Congress to improve student privacy protections. From that letter or, or some of the research it was based on, what leapt out as something that was especially important to you? I think that in general, it's, it's always important, just a matter of being on the record, uh, important to um, hold government accountable, uh, push them to do the right thing, um, push them to uh, you know really take action on um, issues that need to be revisited and um, just for us to really think through, is it working as it was originally intended? So I think that um, if I thought about one part that was important, um, because the whole thing was important, but if I thought about one part, it would probably be towards the end. It was one of the final bullet points that I remember when I first read it kind of stuck with me. And it was talking specifically about when we do systemic monitoring of people and it really affects uh, how um, getting information about students, their personal lives, their free expression, their ability to organize and, and discussing sensitive issues. And I remember when I first read that, all I was thinking was, could you imagine if you know, uh, you have a student that has maybe a, a, a laptop that's a borrowed laptop that still has maybe their camera on or their, their microphone on, and they take it with them to maybe their therapy session. Or maybe they get into the car after school and they ask their parent about um, their custodial arrangement. Or, you know, something really personal if they're talking to 
their friends about relationships. Like, I just think, you know, sometimes you miss the days where it was just like, you pass notes and you put a note in your locker and you just prayed nobody found it on paper. But it's really scary that some of the things that end up in the digital ecosystem will exist there for perpetuity. And that that information could be used to um, shape, impact, harm, um, dissuade students from being able to either ask hard questions or engage in difficult conversations or to just be authentic. And I think, you know, when we think about that, this idea that the conversations that you had at, you know, 12, 13, 14, oh my gosh, I'm going to let that in the digital ecosystem in perpetuity. So it's really scary to think that someone could, under any circumstance, be monitoring that or um, uh, using that to even monetize some of that information. Um, it's just unfair. And I think that that's something that really sticks with me. And part of the reason why we not only think it's it's not just Congress's responsibility to get involved, but we've actually, uh, you know, as Next Century Cities, also called on the FTC to really take action on, you know, creating a privacy framework. Well, Francella, I, I hate to cut us short, but it's been truly, truly a pleasure having you here today. And I, I say, we have to have you back. You, you completely have to come back to Tech Talk and talk to us again. I mean, it's, it's been fantastic. Jamal, don't threaten me with a good time. <laughs> I'm so thankful, so thankful for the work that you guys are doing. And Next Century Cities is always excited to be supportive of that. Thank you again for being here. And for our listeners, if you'd like to find out more about Next Century Cities, please feel free to visit nextcenturycities.org. And if you would like to find out more about CDT's work, please feel free to visit us at cdt.org. I'm Jamal Magby, and thank you all for Talking Tech. Francella, thank you so much for joining us here today. Good morning, Jamal. It's nice to meet Oh my gosh, I forgot. I'm not supposed to say good morning. Uh, is that a one <laughs> it's fine. You can say, is that you can say, no, good morning. Good Cut. morning is totally fine. Cut. Cut. <laughs>